welcome to Pod Revisited, episode 13. Today we are covering chapter 13 of Philosopher's Stone, titled Nicholas Femel. Or, as we like to call it, Ron should slap Dumbledore. We should have a Nimbus update. How is Nimbus doing? She's beautiful. She's delightful. She is the cutest dog in the world. The other day... We have, like, a, one of those long couches with, like, a chaise on one side, and usually the dog will nap on the couch or the beds. But the other day, I'm in my room sleeping, and I peek out into the living room, and she's curled up in an armchair. Like, a normal-sized, not, like, a big, thick, like, a small... She's curled up in the armchair, and I'm like, literally, she could be sleeping on any surface in this apartment besides the kitchen counters, and she's chosen this armchair. It's almost like she's a cat, sleeps anywhere. Oh, she'll sleep anywhere. That is a true fact. So one thing I want to point out for this chapter that we kind of talked about a bit before we started recording is that this is a very short chapter, and it's mostly just filler that is just filling... It's setting up for the payoff in the next few chapters where we we learn more. So basically, we're just having... Things are happening, but they're, they're not really... Nothing's big's happening this chapter. It's just little things. There's just the one aha moment, and that's like basically the whole chapter is aha. Yeah. Very short chapter. So I was surprised. So who knows? We'll see how much we talk this chapter, because, you know, we're known for talking about nothing for 45 minutes. I, I could do that all day, every day, to be honest. <laughs> but paid the bills. The first section you had titled, uh, Ron being the best. <laughs> yeah, this chapter is just Ron. Pure, unadulterated, unedited, you know, Ron. Completely uncompromised. Weasley power. It's beautiful. It's everything that comes out of Ron in this chapter is golden. Yeah, this is probably a, a really standout Ron chapter. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, I love it. His sense of humor is really on point. I love when Ron and Hermione are trying to come up with excuses for Harry to avoid the Quidditch match because Snape is refing. Yes. And Hermione's like, fake break your leg. And Ron is like, really break your leg. And I just, it's still very funny. I love the bantering between Ron and Hermione and then just them going off it to Harry because I wish they kind of liked that in the movie because it's just a so like, funny scene. It's like Snape's referring like, pretend you're ill, break your leg, all these crazy like things they do. But that's like Ron and Hermione's reaction because they're all like hanging out, playing chess and Harry is looking terrible and they're like, don't talk to us, we're playing chess. And all of a sudden he's like, Snape's referring and then they're like, gasping. Flip the board! <laughs> what? Knock the table over, Snape's refereeing. What? Throw the table in the fireplace. <laughs> also, as another really funny Ron line, is when he's talking about how they couldn't find anything about Nicholas Flamel in the book of, like, recent historical wizards. And he's like, well, it makes sense we couldn't find him in there. He's not recent if he's 665, is he? And I just, oh, he's not recent if he's 665. It's so good. I also love Ron, not just for his incredible sense of humor, but also because he has some really great, like, serious good moments in this as well. Like, particularly when he encourages Neville to stand up to Draco. I do think it makes kind of sense why Ron was made a prefect. Like, I know we'll talk about it later in the series, but... I found the excuse that Dumbledore made wrong a prefect just because he thought Harry had too much going on right now is like really terrible and awful and rude to Ron because he is everyone's hype man. 
Absolutely. I agree. He's such a supportive, fr- except for like the one exception of when Ron had personal beef with Harry over the Triwizard Tournament. He is just a good and supportive friend. And he's very much what Gryffindors are encouraged to be. And so it makes sense for him to have been given the role of prefect, even though he breaks the rules when he does it's always in the most Gryffindor heroic sense that he's the textbook definition of Gryffindor. Well, I think they needed someone to balance Hermione because Hermione's the one is more like the exemplary student and she's the one that follows the rules and stuff. But I think Ron was a good choice because he is someone approachable and he has all the good qualities of a leader. And I always felt that being a prefect also gave him confidence. He definitely became more confident in later books. It just gave him something else, too, that Harry didn't have, which I think he kind of needed, because... Yeah, he deserved to have a little bit of attention on him and to be made to feel special and appreciated. Ron deserves it. Not just because Harry has other things going on. That's such a... God, Dumbledore's such a dick. Why Dumbledore? Yeah, and then why does he have to tell Harry that? Like, why couldn't he have told Harry, like, oh, like, Ron needed... I wanted to give Ron, like, a chance to build up his confidence. Because the whole fifth book was Ron having a lot of, like, confidence issues. But no, you just gotta be a dick for no reason. Kick a guy while he's down. Seriously! I also think this chapter is really about Ron fighting Draco, you know? It's been leading up to it. I sort of, there's something about the wizarding world. Will they come to physical confrontations? I find it so entertaining because they could magic each other. You know, they even, they don't know a lot of spells yet, but they could try to magic each other. I mean, what we know, Draco knows the Lightlocker curse. I think that's the only spell he knows. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they know some, you know, and and yet they're like, we're just, let's just brawl. You know, they're like 11, 12 years old, just having a casual brawl at a sporting event. It's like they're hockey moms in Newcastle. It's beautiful. Oh, yes. I think that Ron's just like, he, this has been brewing for like the last few chapters of just like Draco keeping on insulting him, insulting his family, what he stands for. And Ron's grown up with like six brothers or five brothers. So he's just like at the point where he knows that maybe Malfoy is better at magic than him at this point, or at least knows more spells. But Ron knows he can, he can take him in a, like a fist fight. So he like throws himself on Malfoy and he gave him a black eye. Malfoy's a scrawny little git, you know? Ron could definitely take him. Even Ron's like tall for his age. It's referenced that he's very tall. So like he has Malfoy on height and Ron's not afraid to get down dirty. Like I feel like Draco's the kind as the guy that has the cronies. He's like, he's not going to lift a finger, but Ron doesn't care. Yeah, because Draco's an only child. So he didn't grow up having to beat up his siblings just as part of growing up. Ron, as you said, Probably got beat up by the twins. Probably gets beat up by Ginny. Roughhousing. Yeah, I mean, it's just how you, you know? Yeah. I just feel like all of them roughhouse, you know? That's how, that's what you do when you have siblings. Draco seems like the type who would, like, be worried about getting scuff marks on his his robes. Well, that's why he has crab and coil. (laughs) But Ron's, like, would be bleeding and, yeah, that's why he hired his goons. I do like uh, how Ron's confidence in Quirrell, where Harry discovers that... Snape's trying to find out about... Yeah, seriously. I, uh... Again, Ron, one-liners, is what makes this chapter. Also funny, uh, Hermione having this random book, and should she just take library books out about anything just to read them? It just kind of reminds me, like, nowadays I would never do that. It's just like, 
I mean, when I was a kid, I used to get library books. I just used to get random animal encyclopedias because I was really interested in like animals, like especially like big cat animals, like lions, tigers, all that stuff. I just, because we had library time in elementary school. So it kind of reminds me about, but she's doing like really serious history that she's just taking out of the library is 11. For my birthday this year, I got a book of fun Arctic animal facts. <laughs> I mean, I find it weird for an 11 year old, but then I think about it. I go on random Wikipedia articles all the time for weird things that I should, like, there's no reason I should be looking them up, but I get invested in it. You think that Hermione's like this muggle-born girl who just wants to know everything she can about this new world she's in? I think it's interesting because, like, I did read a lot of, like, nonfiction books when I was younger. I love books about horses. I love books about crime. I still love books about crime. Uh, I did love that. I loved history uh, to the sense that I would read anything about Rasputin or the Russians. I don't know why. Uh, I read Machiavelli's The Prince like three times when I was in high school. Um, but so I was definitely that kind of nerd. I think it's interesting for Hermione because the circumstances she's in She's reading factual books and learning, but it also feels like a fantasy novel because it's still so new to her. So it's a nice combination of different reasons to read and enjoy it. Like it's so enjoyable to read about something that you've never imagined before. And then on top of it, you're learning facts that are true and real. Yeah. I feel like if I found out all these things existed that I never had known about before and the world was completely different than I'd ever known, I would want to do all this reading about that world and sort of get a better understanding of it, but also connect fantasy and reality. It's very interesting because like a lot of people do say that like Harry and Ron complain a lot about the magic schoolwork they do and like the things they have to read and uh... Most people were like, I would kill to be doing that instead of algebra homework. Yeah, seriously. Who needs to balance differential equations? I'll write an uh, essay about goblin wars. I want to drink tea in a misty room. <laughs> That's what I want to do. So moving on to more deeper things. Uh, we have um, some follow-up from our last episode where Harry was obsessed with the Mirror of Erised. And at this point, he has promised Dumbledore that he won't go look for it again. But he starts having nightmares about the mirror and it kind of reflects what happened to his parents. So is this more of him remembering or is this just kind of um, connected to the Horcruxes maybe? Or is it just like, I don't know, just his own mind? I think because as we discussed, he didn't really have any photos of his parents growing up. And at this point he still hasn't seen any. So the only memories he has of his parents are probably so deeply forgotten to him because he had nothing to remember them and he was so young when they died. But seeing the reflections in the mirror probably led to him remembering a bit more about them because it was his first time seeing their faces in so long that it probably brought back a bit of his memories, especially the green light. That's very specific, you know, that being the killing course. So I think it's his own mind. It's not necessarily a Horcrux thing. Um, I mean, maybe it's activated a bit by the fact that he's a Horcrux and he's so close to Quirrell who's got Voldemort on his head. So maybe it's a little bit like exasperated by the Horcrux situation, but I think mostly it's just like childhood repressed memories suddenly coming back. Yeah, because definitely I feel like seeing his parents and then not being able to, because he, he went there for three days straight and just sat there for hours. So I feel like it's just the withdrawal and he's thinking about it constantly. So he was happy to like once school came back and once Quidditch practice came back because he was so exhausted doing other things that like he didn't have time to think about it, which makes me really sad. Someone should have given him a photograph or something. But I also, I don't know if we, we mentioned this last episode, but I think this was the first time Harry actually met Dumbledore last chapter. And after this like one conversation they had like face to face, he's like pretty set on Dumbledore. He's like 
Dumbledore told me not to come here, so I'm going to do it. I mean, it's an authority figure. It's an authority figure who caught him doing something bad and didn't reprimand him and was sort of kind to him about it. And he's probably used to Snape being harsh or the Dursleys being awful. So he's like, oh, like this guy's just nicely, this big powerful wizard that everyone talks about being the best is just kind and sweet and like, hey, maybe don't do this again. So he's probably like, oh, this is, this is great. This guy's the best. Oh, he has no reason not to trust Dumbledore because he's, he's Hagrid's the one that's been telling him for the last like half the book that Dumbledore's the best. And he's heard everyone say Dumbledore's the best. And then his first interaction with Dumbledore, Dumbledore's really great to him and sweet and gentle and doesn't get him in trouble. So he's like, okay, 100% this has been proven. He's the best. Can't imagine this guy ever doing anything questionable, nefarious, or selfish. So we have like the continuation of Wizard's Chest, which is interesting. I can't play normal chest anyway. It's too complicated. <laughs> I can play it. I can't play it well. Like I know how each piece moves and the, what the goal is, but I don't know the Queen's Gambit. I don't know the... Uh... But anyway, I was thinking about how it's interesting that... Um, so this is kind of showcasing Ron's like strategic thinking and how he, like, kind of building more his character because we know Harry's pretty... Harry's already showed like his kind of rebellious, like brave heroic side and Ron's kind of a companion piece to his strategic side, which will be used in later books. And then we also have Hermione who can't literally play chess. <laughs> she's not good at it. She's good at all these other things, but she's not good at chess. I think this is an interesting way of highlighting that like Ron, despite not being as smart as Hermione, has things he is, like they use chess just to show you that there are areas in which Ron's brain works that he's better at than Hermione. Hermione's smart, she knows a lot of things, but Ron is also an analytical thinker in a different way. And I think it's really, they, they highlight it with a board game, but I think it's just sort of an early on reminder that he's not just a goofy best friend. He's not just there to punch people. Like chess is known as being a super analytical game for super intelligent people. So I feel like this is them being like, maybe he doesn't pay attention in school and he doesn't try. It's not that he's not smart. If he were interested in what he was learning, he could do good things. Look how good he is at chess. His brain can move six moves ahead or whatever, like chess players. All I can just show is like there are different like learning strategies. Like Ron doesn't really care about school that much because it's school and he's 11. But it's also the way Hermione thinks and the way Ron thinks are completely like the way they learn too is different. Like Hermione reads books and she teaches herself and she probably has a photographic memory. But I feel Ron's more hands-on and like he can, that's the way his brain works. Yeah. I feel like Hermione as a chess player would be the one reading the books. Like, this is how this chess person won this big match this year. And she'd be have memorized those moves. But as soon as Ron would move one, one player in a different way than the opposition did during that game, she would have no idea what to do. She'd be like, I've memorized the best moves to make, but it changes every time he does something and I can't memorize them all. And Ron is probably more reactive in everything he does. So he's better at chess because he sees what they're doing and immediately changes what his plan is based on that like sudden intake of info. Yeah, he's able to adapt. And one of Hermione's issues is that she's not good under pressure and she's not good at adapting. Yeah, so chess is not her uh, strong point. Not her strong point, but it's good for her. And of course, Harry telling um, Neville he's worth 12 Malfoys. Yeah, he is. Sweet. Love it. I mean, Neville's worth more than 12 Malfoys, I would say. 100 Malfoys. Significantly more. So this is uh, where we get the big name drop where um, 
going back to the train where Harry first came, he got the Dumbledore for chocolate frog card. Harry gives Neville a chocolate frog card that happens to be Dumbledore, gives it back to Harry, and then realize that it mentions Nicholas Mel, which then gets Hermione to realize that she took this book out that had his name, and they discover about alchemy and the Philosopher's Stone. Which is the big reveal, the big aha moment. Or at least one of them. So we know what Fluffy is guarding at this point. I feel like I remembered Nicholas Flamel from the when he was mentioned at the beginning of the book the first time I read this. And so I was kind of like, maybe it's because I could flip back through the pages and double check as soon as I got suspicious. But I feel like this wasn't a reveal to me in the book. I'd already sort of gone and remember, okay, yeah, he, that was on the chocolate frog card. So I didn't have, it wasn't as like, oh, <gasps> shocking to me but yeah I don't know if it was shocking to me or not because I don't remember if I saw the movie before because this was my class book so I didn't actually read this till I was a lot older like myself but it was read to us when I was probably about nine but I think I might have seen the movie first so it probably wasn't as shocking yeah interesting to see the flip so it just goes to show all the foreshadowing that happens in this book. So much foreshadowing, it's a little bit ridiculous. Especially when at one point Harry talks about worrying that Snape can read his mind, which is a great sort of hint at the fact that Snape probably can. Both, uh, he both says that he re- thinks Snape can read his mind, but he also says he feels x-rayed by Dumbledore in the middle of the books, and both Dumbledore and Snape can, like, can read minds, so it's very interesting. That Harry's, like, self-aware. Yeah, he can feel it. He doesn't know what he's feeling, but he feels it. But I was going to say, this: all the Quidditch scenes in this book have alternating perspectives. We talked about this before, but the first Quidditch match, how it goes between Harry's perspective on the pitch to Ron Hermione's perspective in the stands. And this continues, and it kind of goes from Harry's perspective in playing Quidditch, Ron Hermione in the stands, Ron's fight with Malfoy, and also kind of Snape's perspective as he's just kind of watching, doing his refing. Which is interesting because I guess the author didn't really know how to portray like what was going on without switching between us. But this is probably the only book I think all the Quidditch matches are in multiple people's perspective because for the rest of the series is we just focus on Harry on the pitch. I think it's interesting because I feel like what would go on just in the mind of Harry Potter during a Quidditch game is literally just like, is that the snitch? No. Is that the snitch? No. What's Fred and George doing down there? Oh, look at that. A bird. Is that the snitch? Like, I don't think it would be like a good narrative experience. It would be a lot of like, nope, that's a bird. <laughs> like, it would not uh, be very interesting. Speaking of uh, Snape being ref, I was wondering, like, can any, like, how did he become ref? Like, obviously, probably Dumbledore, like, allowed him to be. Because Dumbledore's a dick. Yeah, but I was like, Woods all surprised, like, Snape's refereeing, and it's just like, they all seem so upset and shocked by it. And I was wondering how McGonagall at the stand, because she knows Snape's bias. He's won the Quidditch Cup, like, the last seven years, and she wants that Quidditch Cup. So I, yeah. <laughs> she might be like, Dumbledore, what the hell? But I was wondering, like, what or what the process would be. Like, can any teacher ref any game if they want to? In my mind, you have to qualify. Like, you have to do some sort of test, Quidditch ref test, because I feel like that's, like, the basics. I feel like in order to have a house team, probably all of the heads of houses have to do it so that, like, they can take turns refing, so that there's people who've taken turns refing so all the teams have a chance. And I also think, like, hypothetically, there's a rule that you can't, ref a game your team is playing yeah so i was gonna say almost that i feel like the house like leaders shouldn't be refing that because it's like they're in charge of a house they already have biases but it is noticed that he snape doesn't ref a game for his house which is probably why yeah i think that's probably like they need to have a certain amount of refs 
And the, they probably, their main attempts at avoiding bias is not letting McGonagall coach Gryffindor games or Snape coach Slytherin games. And this isn't a Slytherin game. So even though there's bias involved, it's not as blatant. Because you got to think at least they have that rule. But also Dumbledore's a dick. Like, honestly, anyone with half a brain would be like, we're not going to let Snape ref a game that impacts Slytherin House. Like, no one's going to let me ref a Team Canada game. I mean, obviously, the easiest answer is that Dumbledore let him do it. Yeah, just, he, you know, it's because Dumbledore let him do it. That's why he did it. And, uh, yep. But, I mean, like I said, Snape's definitely biased, and everyone kind of knows it, so it's just a poor choice by the higher-ups. Yeah, Oliver was not happy. He's like, I want this to win this Quidditch game, but freaking Snape's here. There's also this paragraph where it kind of describes Harry catching the snitch, and he flies past Snape, and Snape's kind of frozen, just kind of watching him, and he does, he's, he's, it's just like this expression on his face, and I kind of was wondering if it's almost like he's like flashing back to adolescence where he sees James, because we know James was on the Gryffindor Quidditch team. Childhood trauma. He's having a traumatic flashback to his childhood trauma. Yeah, probably. Who knows? Because I don't think Snape really ever did much like flying or he never referenced him being the Quidditch team. Oh, he can fly. He just doesn't need a broom because he's phenomenal and beautiful and so talented. I mean, I didn't give any Snape any sucks points this chapter, but it's not too late. (laughs) I mean, he gave the Weasleys a penalty that maybe wasn't needed, maybe was needed. I didn't see the play. (laughs) I didn't see the play, so I can't say for sure. Um, I'm sure he would have done something douchey if the game had gone on longer. But also, I kind of, like, obviously Snape is going to be biased. I bet McGonagall's biased when she's a ref and we love her. She's wonderful, but I bet she's a little bit biased for Gryffindor. So it's kind of like, just don't put people who have invested interest in the outcomes of the game in charge of refing. But... Who am I to know anything about that? <laughs> but um, that's how I feel about the subject. It's Dumbledore's fault is what I'm saying. It's Dumbledore's fault. Everything's, this is the whole chapter. It's Dumbledore's fault. <laughs> Ron should punch Dumbledore. Could you imagine? That's what I'm getting from this chapter. <laughs> punch Dumbledore in the nose. That should be the title. Ron should punch Dumbledore. Break it more. You have that they, uh, Ron and Hermione learned the like Lucker curse to use on Snape, which is amazing. <laughs> I love, love, love When Hermione decides to go bad, Hermione goes bad. I mean, I think we've mentioned it before, but like there's a million things you can do to distract a teacher. Excuse me, I have a question about the homework, you know? No, she's like, I'm going to learn an offensive curse or defensive. Either way, it's a curse. And we're going to practice it to use on our professor, just in case. I mean, it's just so far in to hoodlumhood, to trouble, to... Tomfoolery to mischief. Especially because Hermione believed, like, like, liked all her teachers and respected them as, like, authority figures. And then as soon as, like, Harry and Ron... But also, we could curse Snape. Yeah. But also when Harry and Ron gave her, like, semi-proof that he was bad, she's like, okay, well, if he does, if he does something, I'll curse him. Yeah, I just love that, them practicing to curse the teacher. They're, like, 11 and 12, and they're like, we're gonna do this thing. Yeah. We're gonna just casually attack Snape for it's beautiful i mean i love it i really i really do yeah respect for ron for voting draco and then poor neville who tried to fight crab and goyle at the same time don't you poor neville he did great i think how many times has neville been in the hospital wing so far in this just this book three i think oh poor guy so now we go on to the secret forest rendezvous which sounds very sexy but isn't because quarrel's there of course (laughs) and voldemort too also not sexy (laughs) um so Snape's out there in the woods being Snape. 
chatting it up with good old Quirrell. And it's funny because I feel like this is probably the beginning of Snape having to be a double agent again, kind of. He's trying, he's a little bit, I mean, he's on Dumbledore's side. He doesn't know if Voldemort's back. So he's sort of just trying to figure out who's after this stone for Dumbledore. But he also, you've got to think he's being careful with the way he says things because clearly he says nothing that makes Voldemort aware, right? Because he lies and says, if I'd known what your plans were, I would have helped out to, to Voldemort later on when he re-rises from the dead. Mm-hmm. So somehow he manages to interact with Quirrell in all these ways while very cautiously avoiding saying anything that would throw off Voldemort. And I don't know how the man does it. He tiptoes around on these sharp ledges and he somehow just pirouettes his way through these dangerous situations and somehow always comes out on top. I respect it. Ballet Snape dancing through trouble. He's just catching Snape in all his most shady moments. Gotta give it to Carl though. He plays his part very well because Harry like 100% believes he's this poor sniveling defenseless weakling that can't defend himself against mean Snape. I also wonder, I mean, I know Snape's a dick because Snape's a dick and he's mean to Harry because of he hates Harry's dad and Harry reminds him of his dad and I get that. But I wonder if to some extent Dumbledore encourages Snape to treat Harry like shit because everyone else treats Harry quite well, minus the Dursleys. Maybe it's part of Dumbledore's plan to keep Harry sort of humble and not let him get too big-headed is to encourage someone to continue to mistreat Harry so Harry doesn't think he's untouchable and doesn't think everybody loves him. Because that's a very Dumbledore thing to do. Be like, this is going to hurt him, but in the end, it'll benefit my plan. That's a very Dumbledore thing to do, but it's also terrible. Do you think that's a possibility or do you think I'm just trying to make Snape a better person? Maybe. I just feel like Snape's just a very bitter man and he just does everything himself because they show Dumbledore's like, yep, this is what you saved. And Snape just just want to deal with it. But I also think Dumbledore never tries to fix the burden between them, though. Like, he never tries to make things better. Yeah, because it benefits him, right? The more someone else is mean to Harry, the more Dumbledore looks like he's extra nice to Harry. The more Harry stays modest, the more Harry relies on Dumbledore for things. So really, Dumbledore maybe doesn't tell Snape to be a dick, but he's perfectly fine with it happening because it serves his purpose. Because he's a a dick. <laughs> I also, near the end of this chapter, love that Dumbledore reminds Harry about the mirror again, saying, don't think about that thing, while congratulating him for his Quidditch, which is obviously when he's not thinking about the mirror because he just won a huge Quidditch game. He's thinking about woot woot Quidditch. It, to me, it's just Dumbledore manipulating Harry again. He reminded Harry about the mirror because he didn't want Harry to forget about the mirror because he's priming Harry to use the mirror as a weapon against Voldemort slash Quirrell. So I feel like he's like, excuse me, Harry, you seem to be having a pure moment of joy that you earned through hard work, determination, and the power of teamwork and friendship. Let me just remind you about the priority. Get back to work. <laughs> Go fight that grown man. The mirror that shows your dead parents. Yeah, don't forget your parents are dead. (laughs) Classic Dumbledore. And no one's shown you a photograph of them, except for the mirror. Yeah, the mirror is a better teacher to Harry than Dumbledore. More emotionally supportive. (laughs) It's done more for Harry's heart than Dumbledore has. Oh yeah, we just need Hagrid to come in with that album. I know you mean photo album, but as soon as you said when Hagrid comes in with that album, I was like, he's dropping a mixtape. It's gonna be wild. What would Hagrid's rap name be? Yeah, I don't know. I don't think he'd rap. I don't think Hagrid would rap, but I do think he would have a song called Drunk at Breakfast. (laughs) 
Uh, he'd, he'd have some bangers. A true pop idol. Leaving it off at Neville. You know what? Neville is so relatable. Like, until we get goofy, goofy Luna in here, there's something about Neville where, like, everyone has had moments in their life where they feel like, why is it always me? And he doesn't say that until the next book, but it's always Neville. And it's, it really speaks to young children, I think, to be like, oh, he's okay. And also, oh, wow, this stuff happens to him all the time. I think it's it's really good for the readers to have that, especially because Neville's so sweet about everything. You just want to wrap him up in a tortilla and snuggle and protect him. Mm-hmm. And Neville's like the one that doesn't have like the close friend. Like Harry has Ron, Dina, Seamus, and Hermione's with Harry and Ron kind of, and then Lavender and Pavardi have paired up, and he just kind of the, like the floater friend. But everyone likes him. He's everyone everyone's friend. No one has a bad thing to say about him, and people are pretty defensive about him too. I mean, well, Malfoy sucks, so let's give him a suck point. So Draco tells Neville that he's not brave enough to be a Gryffindor. And uh, I think it's interesting that that is a very particular and specific insecurity of Neville, sort of like Ron's family issues and money are specific insecurity. And even though Draco's 11 or 12, he's really proficient at finding what the weakness is, what the specific insecurities are in a person to use them against him, them rather. And it's very Slytherin. Like not all Slytherins are going to use it to be evil. Some people would probably use it for the opposite, find out what someone's insecure about and boost their confidence in that area. But it is an impressive skill to at least be able to identify those insecurities so young in other people. It's it's interesting. And a skill. It's a skill. He uses it for evil, but it's it's a skill. Yeah. yeah I just feel like Neville's like, he's. I feel like he's very aware. He does try and make up for it. But I think with his family, I think he was very aware of how much they were putting pressure on him to be magical and that he knows that he's not quite the grandson that they wanted compared to his parents. And I feel like that weighed on him for a really long time because he had so much pressure on him. But once the pressure was kind of off and he had, was more confident, it was like, it was there all along. It shows you shouldn't put your hopes and dreams on your kid and weigh them down for no reason. And I mean, Neville... 100% to me is the most Gryffindor because he is sort of that definition where it's not the absence of fear that makes you brave. It's doing something regardless of the fact that you're afraid of it. And to me, that's Neville. You know, even little things like social interactions sometimes seem a bit harder for him, but he goes out and does them. You know, he tells Draco that he's worth 12 of him to his face, you know, and it's scary, but also he does it. And it's just makes him very, very relatable to even non-Gryffindors, they can see parts of themselves in that, you know? We get in the third book that Neville's greatest fear at the time is Snape because Snape's really hard on him. And I feel like that is so brave to actually go to a class and face your fear basically every day when he goes to potions. Because I definitely had classes which I absolutely dreaded and stuff. And he feels insecure that that scares him every day. He walks into that potions class and he probably feels like the dread because that's probably his weakest subject. And he faces Snape every day because that's Neville. Yeah, that is what he does. And he becomes all the better for it. Like he shouldn't have to put up with bullying, but he really does become such an absolute force. And it's nice to see someone who struggles for so long. He's like the heartwarming story of Harry Potter. I mean, Harry Potter does great things, but he was great from the beginning. Like he was kind of born, congratulations, you're great. (laughs) But Neville like worked his way to it. Really, really, no one would have expected Neville in book one to become the Neville he becomes. And it's so delightful to know that that Neville's in there the whole time. It's really nice. I mean, Neville jumping in. Especially since no one really had a lot of confidence in him. Like not even like, he's raised by his grandparents and not even like his grandparents like 
had any faith in him. So he kind of had to do everything himself. And it was just through the like for, through his friends and through like guidance, because he didn't even really have any teachers besides like Professor Sprout kind of like grow pushing him forward. Like, I feel like he didn't have the support Harry had to succeed. Absolutely. I think Neville, maybe the issue Neville's family had is that because they lost Neville's parents, they sort of wanted Neville to fill that void. And so they were looking to Neville for all the things they loved and missed about his parents. And so they couldn't see the things that were lovely and delightful about Neville because they spent so much time trying to find his parents in him that they didn't really even see Neville. They're just looking for evidence that he truly is the son of his parents, you know? And that's why things like getting into charms, getting into like advanced charms classes and stuff don't impress his grandmother. A little bit because she didn't do charms well, but mostly because they just want him to remind them of his parents or to achieve what his parents achieved. And they don't really ever take the time to wonder about what he could achieve on his own if he actually got to feel rewarded for his actual skills. That is a form of like trauma bonding. Cause I know that sometimes when like you lose like your son or your daughter and then you have grandchildren, you're trying to fill like a void with the grandchildren, but it's not like as you're not treating them as a person. It's more just like an object to fill the grief. And I feel like uh, for at least for Neville's grandmother, like her son represented a lot about her because they are pure blood family. And I feel like she was the kind of witch that liked appearances and stuff. And her son was an, a well-respected auror. And so she obviously wanted Neville to fill that void, but he, was, he wasn't his dad, he was himself. And I feel like what took her a while until she realized like what he was doing for the cause, then he realized like he is his like his dad. But I'm hoping Yeah, he's as good and as brave. He just went about it in a different way and she couldn't see that path. He just had different strengths and she couldn't see it until later. But I'm hoping that at the end of the series when he becomes a Hogwarts professor that she's very proud of him. Ugh, I'm proud of him and that's what matters. <laughs> My opinion is truly the opinion that matters most to Neville Longbottom. That's my hot take for today. I also love that when Ron is fighting Draco and Neville participates in the fight, he fights Crab and Goyle. He doesn't join Ron and make it a two-on-one against Draco, which is... One-on-one. Almost unfair. You're not supposed to fight two-on-one. It's not... And he takes... Especially Crab and Goyle. Yeah. So he's like, I wouldn't do that. I'm going to take both of these big, strong, physically imposing lugs and fight them. I got this. I mean, Neville. Neville Longbottom. You might have seen that Ron, like, needed to fight Draco. Like, it was personal for him. Like, the last few chapters, Ron has been egging up to, like, fight Malfoy. So that was just, like, Ron's fight. If he knew that, though, that's a lot of emotional maturity and sort of empathy and understanding coming from an 11, 12-year-old. Yeah, I do feel like Neville understands more than what a lot of the other Gryffindors think. Like, I feel like he's not like super close to like he's not like best friends he's kind of a floater like I said but I feel like he's very aware of like what when people talk to him I feel like he's very aware of like what they're saying and stuff because I feel like he's just very emotional and he has that sensitivity to like understand when what people are telling what they're feeling and stuff yeah I feel like he to some extent has the same skill as Draco where you can understand people's weaknesses and strengths but he does not use it to make them more miserable he tries to use it for the better I think Luna probably does that the strongest out of all the characters, though, identifying people's weaknesses, sadnesses, and helping them through it. But Neville definitely has the ability to identify that, I think. He's very empathetic, probably because he's been through so much on his own. He knows what it feels like to be made fun of by Draco. He knows what it feels like to feel like you don't have a relationship with your parents. And so because he's been through so much, he empathizes so well with others. 
that maybe he has more of an emotional maturity at that age. What a guy. Can't wait to, as we go along the series and see how he grows in each book. Yeah. Into just a delightful, delightful, delightful character. So thank you so much for listening to this episode of Pod Revisited. We'll be back next time to discuss chapter 14, Norbert the Norwegian Ridgeback. Everyone should comment on this tweet and or video and let us know what you think Hagrid would call his album. Let us know. And also as we start to wrap up this um book for this for the podcast let us know if you'd like us to do a movie review slash commentary Ooh, movie review after this wraps up before we dive into chamber of secrets because that could be fun do you want to hear the noises i make when i see alan rickman as snape because it's not appropriate <laughs> we might have to cut those out but but let us know and if you have any comments about today's episode you can email us at potterrevisited at gmail.com or you can comment across social media at potterrevisited and we'll see you next time bye Thank you.